Welcome to Lights at the End of the Tunnel, a place where we shine a light on, rant, complain, and try to find solutions about the MGA. After all, we are all in these tin cans together. Welcome back to Lights at the End of the Tunnel. Glad to have you back. Episode 34. Recorded December 21st, 2019. On this episode, I speak with Jennifer Van Dyke from Rise and Resist and Sasha Blair Goldenson. Jennifer is part of Rise and Resist Elevator Action Group. Rise and Resist is a coalition of concerned New Yorkers and activists moving to push wheelchair accessibility to the top of the MTA agenda. Sasha Blair Goldenson is a father of two, a Google software engineer since 2006, and he is also a wheelchair user since a spinal cord injury in 2009. Today we discuss accessibility and the MTA. The train stations in New York City are less than 25% accessible. There are 1 million New Yorkers who are shut out of the right of transit in New York City. This is shameful and appalling. On Friday, December 20th, Jennifer Van Dyke and Sasha Blair Goldenson and I sat down and on this episode we discuss Rise and Resist Elevators for Everyone campaign, the Capital Plan, Accessoride, the on-demand ride program, and other accessibility issues. After my conversation with Jennifer Van Dyke and Sasha Blair Goldenson, I will speak on what we learned from Jennifer and Sasha and my thoughts on what we had learned from them. Following my summary, I will have contact information for Rise and Resist, Sasha Blair Goldenson, and myself. Please listen to what Jennifer and Sasha have to say. Their words and experiences are important. Please enjoy. Today I'm speaking with Jennifer Van Dyke of Rise and Resist and Sasha Blair Goldenson. Jennifer is part of Rise and Resist Elevator Action Group. Rise and Resist is a coalition of concerned New Yorkers and activists moving to push wheelchair accessibility in the subways to the top of the MTA agenda. Sasha Blair Goldenson is a father of two and a Google software engineer since 2006. He is also a wheelchair user since a spinal cord injury in 2009. Thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. It's important that all stories are shared because everybody matters and not all um, people are being talked about in a way that I think is positive and we need to share all their stories so everybody knows what's going on. So, what led you both to activism, Jennifer? I joined uh, Rise and Resist in the aftermath of Trump's election in 2016 and uh, I didn't know how well, which, what part of Rise and Resist I wanted to be a part of. It's a, it's a group dedicated to um, civil disobedience um, and uh, speaking out against injustices uh, across the board, of which there are too many to count in this current administration. And there, was, uh, m- there were many, many ways to use one's energy, and it was a question of how, where do I, where do I begin? So there were, there, were, there were immigration groups and election groups and uh, healthcare groups and... Um, a lot of places that needed a lot of attention, but then there was this 
upstart of a group uh, that, that named itself the Elevator Action Group. And uh, Sasha was one of the, uh, was there before I was. And I looked at this um, ragtag group of people and said, I want to be a part of this. And it wasn't until afterwards um, that I realized that I had a very personal connection, which for some reason wasn't clear to me in the moment. But my dad was in a wheelchair uh, the last year of his life. Okay. And so that experience changed my life. Um, and uh, it certainly changed his. But my understanding of the world was completely altered looking at it through his eyes. And so I realized that uh, I wanted to be a part of trying to make the subway system accessible. And that's what led me to do what I've been doing for the past, it's almost three years now. Okay, great. Sasha, what led you to your activism? So I had this just... Um, bizarre accident happened to me in summer of 2009. I was walking in Central Park. A giant rotten tree limb fell at the instant I was walking beneath it on top of my head. And I was extremely unfortunate in that instant. I was very lucky in the following minutes, days, weeks, months, and that I'm still here. Mm -hmm. That I was, someone immediately found me. A, Literally, a doctor was jogging, a good Samaritan doctor was jogging by in the park, um, sort of stabilized me until the ambulance got there, et cetera, et cetera. But sooner or later, actually a lot later, like seven months later, I came, I was finally discharged from the rehab hospital and came home and most intact in so many ways, but I had a spinal cord injury and those don't heal. So I was going to need to learn to get around by wheelchair. Uh, and I grew up in the city, so you'd think I had some idea. I had no idea. I mean, it's never. I never thought it looked easy, but the parts of it that are hard, that's what's surprising. I mean, like anything, when you get close to it, it's, it's always deeper than you know, but it's been so frustrating and at times just infuriating when you realize that there's so much stuff that doesn't have to be so hard right. and is and it's it's a I mean inefficiency is kind of a cold word but just waste or effort and time and money going to, to the wrong things and in particular from growing up in the city I knew that people in wheelchairs don't take the subway so that wasn't even like I never even thought about it it's like once I started getting around independently it was like okay I guess I'd take the bus now and it was when I went to Boston, and that was not so my injury was 2009, maybe 2013. So it was, you know, several years later, I was starting to get comfortable getting around myself. And in Boston, a friend said, hey, can you meet me over at Harvard Yard, and you can take, take the train over, take the T? And I said, no, you can't take the, I can't take the subway. I'm in a wheelchair. And she said, no, I, I think you can. I think they'll have elevators. Yeah. And yeah, what, what do you know? It, Boston is about, at this time, about 90% accessible. They've after the ADA was passed in 1990, they made them in Chicago have made concerted efforts to put in elevators, and um, even on their website, they even acknowledge that New York City is less than 25 percent accessible. We are dead last to yep. use Sasha's phrase uh, in this in the United States in terms of accessibility in, in major cities. We 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 are at the bottom here in New York City. And also, people like to say that New York City is old. 
Boston predates us by like seven years, so I don't want to hear that we can't install elevators because it's old. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. <laughs> and same deal with Chicago. And they're not at in the 90s yet, but I believe they're in the 60s now, they're and they're the going 70s, north. Actually. In the 70s, actually. In the 70s. 72%, I think, the they've, last time I read. Mm-hmm. They've got it. And coming back from Boston, I was like, wait, what? And then when I got back, I sort of talked to some friends about it, and I have a very industrious friend. He looked it up on the internet and found out, oh, no, Boston settled a big suit. about It was about a dozen years prior at that time. And that was why. I think they were already kind of on the way. They were doing better than New York, but mm-hmm. that, that forced them to get their ass in gear, as, to use the technical term. And then it was like, wait, why hasn't that happened in New York? Dot, dot, dot. So we, we got busy. So you have some lawsuits that are currently happening right now with the MTA. So tell us about those lawsuits. How do you go about suing the MTA? What are your lawsuits about? Are they about specific stations or is it an all-encompassing lawsuit? How many people are involved? So there, there are two lawsuits that I'm uh, one of many plaintiffs in. Okay. Um, and they got started I guess it was around 2016. It was 2016, maybe that I that I first met with. So when I looked around, so when I found out about the Boston lawsuits, we started looking around. Like, so who's? How does how does this happen? I mean, a few friends, and it turned out there was this group called DRA Disability Rights Advocates, which stood kind of alone in terms of doing really big, like high impact, you know, city level class actions, and they're out of Berkeley. Which another thing you learn, that which Berkeley, like the the birthplace of the independent living movement, mm-hmm. and that which I had all these things I had no idea, and and so they've done a lot of cases over the years for rights of various kind of people, and and I and one of their a couple of their people came out to New York and had lunch with me and a few friends at Google, uh, where I work, and Sid Walensky, who was the co-founder there, who's since retired, actually, um, said, well, the thing is, DRA is really good law. It has some wrinkles. And one lesser known thing was that New York and Philadelphia insisted on inserting some uh, workarounds and, or I don't know what you call it legally, some, some exceptions in the law that legally allowed them to not make their their rapid transit system accessible, really? Accord, really, according to ADA, and it's shameful. But he said that the senators or whoever it was that had to vote on it basically laid down and said, we will block this, it shall not pass, because we believe that being forced to make our systems accessible as ADA would require will bankrupt us. It will be disastrous for us. We can't afford it. And so they got these exceptions which said, okay, you can provide a what do they call it, a, a reasonable, an alternative accommodation. Uh-huh. And the alternative accommodation in New York's case was paratransit, right. dot, 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 accessoride eventually. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, instead of doing every station accessible, you can do only 100 key stations by 2020, i.e. in about a week, which they still haven't done yet. Uh, and those 100 key stations make those accessible and in addition provide paratransit. And it was the you know, uh, market-based solutions crowd said it will be so much 
cheaper and easier and just more beneficial for everyone. It'll be the zip zap door to door service for people who need it. And then everybody else just take the stairs because it's no big deal. And it'll be cheaper, it'll be better. And in the time since, like former MTA top people like Howard Roberts, who retired some years ago, are on the record saying, worst blunder we could have made. Yeah. By now, we would have made the entire system accessible many times over and saved billions. But it was a massive oversight. Well, and just so we're clear, we're talking 30 years ago. Yeah. I know. 1990 yeah. was the ADA. I know. So uh, we are... Blake Morris, who I spoke with for the podcast, was running for Senate. He was a lawyer who was um, not working for the MTA, but working with the MTA. And he was with a group that would that wanted to have these whole system elevator accessible by the year 2000, and the MTA wouldn't do it. It's deliberate, and it's on purpose. It has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with liabilities. Like, they don't want to be liable for it. Well, it had to do with money initially. Well, yeah, it did. Also, they just didn't want to be liable for it. They didn't want people, like, delivery people using them and everything. It's like, well, if you have a problem with elevators, why don't you just put in ramps? I mean, and then they put in elevators, but they go to the mezzanine level. Ramps are our, uh, uh, that's our theme song. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the least expensive technology and the, the least, the, it, it leads the least repair and, and we, we can have so many of them and we don't have it. So what's, it like, so what's it like suing the MTA? I, mean, I, so, ma- I imagine they have like an army of lawyers preventing you from doing anything and yelling at you and telling you <laughs> you can't talk about this and you can't do that. What's that like? Well, it's mostly been, I mean, DRA, they're the pros. They, they do these big suits. So, and I'm not in the courtroom hardly right. ever. I'm not filing the briefs. But, but I, I sort of got carried away telling you about something else. I don't know what now. <laughs> but the point is that, that Sid told me they have this exception. So it's not that easy to sue them under ADA. But don't worry, I'm going to think of something. And he kind of, they went dark for a couple of months. And I thought, I guess maybe they decided not to do it. And I got a call and he said, Sasha, don't worry, we've been thinking about it and we put something together. This is, we, we have a plan, but we don't tell anyone because it's kind of under wraps for now. And then a few months later, they were ready to file. And he said, I took, and I'm holding up this chart that I have here. This is kind of an adaptation of one they had in the, in the Wall Street Journal. This is a version that I made. Mm-hmm. But he said, I've been showing this to people and saying, and the chart is, it shows, you know, a bar graph of all these big cities and their transit system and how accessible they are. A lot of them are 100%. And then there's New York all alone at the bottom at 22%. Less, less than half of the, of the next closest, which is Philadelphia at 49% at that time. And Philadelphia, the other people who got the exception, by the way. Uh, and Sid said, he said he was showing this graph to people and saying, I don't know what law this breaks, but this breaks some law. Mm-hmm. This has got to break something. So what they did is they came up with like a pretty, as I understand it, unique legal theory to make two cases. And one was under ADA, sure, you can't go after them for only having 20%, but you sure as stuff can go after them for not having those 20% work. Because the data that I came to them with initially was this FOIL request that my cousin, who's a journalist, had got her friend to serve and we came up with. And that we got a year's worth of outage data to show that in one year, there were 9,000 9, uh, elevator outages. What does that mean? That means about uh, 
25 per day. Oh my God. Which is nuts. That's crazy. Yeah, that's officially crazy. And it's like, wait, what? And those are, those are the quote unquote accessible stations. Yeah. So the accessible ones, they're going out 25 times a day. And that's the, and that breaks the shit out of ADA. ADA is like, it's under, they got the exception ADA, so you only have to do these 100. But the exception didn't say, but you don't really have to do them. They don't have to work. They ought to work. Yeah. So, they, so they're getting, so we sued them under, in federal court, because federal court is ADA. Or, so, so there's the federal court half of the suit, which is for breaking ADA by not maintaining. And then in state court, they went there, we're going after them for not, for only being 20%, because even if it doesn't break ADA because of the exception, it sure does break the New York City human rights law, which says that a public grid like that has to actually be public. And you can't discriminate on who can use it. Yeah. So that so, so, yeah. And then, and but they have, they have various ways they've been trying to get out of it in the state side, which is the, the what they call the global case. So that's the case for just, not doing all the stations and doing only twenty percent. Mm-hmm. And they keep getting smacked down by Judge Hagler, to the and it's two years into the case now, to the point where they fairly recently, a couple of months ago, hired. Paul Weiss, Rifkin, blah, 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 who's like, you know, a super high-priced firm. I looked it up. Uh, the senior lawyers there get over $1,000 per hour per lawyer. That's so, our money. Yeah, our that's, which is, yeah, the, the, yes, they get it out they of the same. They have an army of lawyers just and, preventing and, and those same lawyers were all sitting there while the judge said no, 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 and no on all their ways to try to get it dismissed, and it's going to go to trial at that same, or that's where it's headed, and they're not backing down and it's with all of our money and it's like a, an unwinnable case it's but it's just delay 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 and just so you know from yeah. what we do is as rise and resist in the elevator action group we go to the courthouse whenever there's a hearing and we rally outside and we draw attention to it uh to passers-by and then we go into the courthouse and we make our very visible presence in judge Hagler's courtroom and the result of that actually has been, let me just tell you, the wheels of justice grind exceedingly slow. I mean, it is, it is unbearable sometimes. The procedural, I won't say nonsense, but the procedural stuff they have to go through um, is, is how our law works. Now, on the one hand, so it puts brakes on it every step, but it also means um, Judge Hagler has very clearly shown uh, where his heart is on this which he said in the phrase he used to the MTA lawyers was let the sunshine in. Essentially, stop hiding and show, show us what you've got. Because they kept saying, um, there's a, the whole process of discovery. This is not my territory. But they, the MTA kept saying, well, we can't show this because that'll, if that's a danger to the public if we reveal what elevators are out of use or whatever they tried to say. And Judge Hagler just said, nope, you've got you to show your cards. And so at every point it has felt like, and, and because it's a room full of people, many of whom are in wheelchairs, he has been incredibly appreciative, uh, respectful of the fact of how challenging it is for every one of those people to get into his courtroom. Because i got to be honest, the New York State Supreme Court is not the most accessible building. I mean, there is, and you've got to take a back way in around the corner. You can't go up the steps, obviously the front steps, the law and order steps. You have to go around the back, and then you have to go through two different elevators. So you can get into his courtroom, but he, he gets it, right. um, which is the most sort of positive part of this. The other side that is, is intensely frustrating is that it delay, 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 that the, we, we keep going there thinking, oh, there'll be a ruling today, but it's just a procedural. We'll see you in three months. Get your papers together. We'll see you in another three months. 
because um, actually it was filed uh, April 2017, so we're, we're at two and a half, we're over two and a half years. Um, I'm counting up on three. Yeah, yeah. And those lawyers are still getting $1,400 an hour, so... And the MTA is not revealing the fact that they changed firms. They had another firm, and they fired them because they were, they were hoping not to go to trial, and then they are going to trial, so they fired those lawyers they didn't like and got this white glove uh, group of lawyers that are being paid $1,000 an hour by our taxpayer money. In the amount of money that they have spent fighting lawsuits to have elevators, they could have just installed a bunch of elevators. They could have in installed a handful of elevators or a boatload of ramps. Yeah. Like like hundreds. I mean, it's, it's appalling. It is appalling. It's shameful and embarrassing. It really is. And it's in, as you know, Elevators are for everybody. That's our you that's know, our theme song. Yeah, it's just like think of all think of how many times you've helped somebody with small children with that stroller up those stairs, or elderly with canes and walkers and stuff. It's just and it's, it's and a, it's safety a lot. and safety because the tragedy we're coming up on a year. Malaysia Goodson. Yeah, yeah, that happened last January. Yeah, and the tragedy there is not only did she lose her life. This is a mother who was holding carrying her daughter down the stairs at 7th Avenue and 53rd Street Station, which is many, many layers underground, many staircases and not and absolutely inaccessible. And uh, I live near there. I use it, that station all the time. And it is no wonder more there aren't more accidents. But the tragedy there is that Malaysia Goodson died. Her, her daughter survived. But the MTA never contacted the family because... Well, there's no because. There's no, there's no excuse. There's absolutely there's nothing there's nothing you can say about that. It's a, it's beyond horrific. The reality is that that is an accident that can happen every day of the week. Sure. And true. they need to address it. And it's so shameful in all those ways. But it's the the cynicism that afterwards they've continued to put out the story that well maybe she had a pre-existing health yeah, condition yeah, she, and what the what causes. is that it's like she it still doesn't matter down, she still fell down a flight of stairs she was still hauling a, a stroller child. up a flight of stairs with her one-year-old daughter in it right who cares if she it, that's not the point the point is no if woman there, if no there, person should have to do that if she did have a pre-existing condition where stress was causing you know issues inside of her think of how much stress there is taking a stroller with a child by yourself down a flight of stairs. But this is millions of New Yorkers experience every single day. I mean, that's that's the outrageousness of the situation. This is not this is not unique. No. There are parents, caregivers, teachers with students. I mean, any number of combination of people that that have to get up and down uh, in in the, in the subway system. And the idea that somehow New York is not, doesn't have to be accessible, according to the MTA, is appalling. But I do want to say that we have to that politically. Um, the, 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 the bright light that has happened in the past couple of years was the appointment of Andy Byford to the MTA. Now, one person cannot change everything, but one person using the word accessibility in a room where that word has never been used is astonishing. The, MT, the MTA refused to even use the word, and then all of a sudden they hired this man who came from Toronto and various other places where he was fixing subways and uh, made accessibility part of his mandate. <clears throat> So people in the accessibility rights, I mean, people were thrilled by his arrival. The reality now, of course, is that we have, we are coming up against the, a, a, a clash of personalities. Yes. So Cuomo, who literally has to be held accountable for all of this, 
because he holds the purse strings. And without money, nothing can be changed in the subway system. So there is a, we have a governor who doesn't address accessibility. We have someone who is the president of the Transportation Association, Andy Byford, who does address accessibility, but they don't talk to each other uh, as often as they should. And um, and then Cuomo, on one hand, says, you know, you guys deal with it. No, I'll deal with it. No, it, and so there's all this pointing back and forth about who's in charge, and that's 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 the biggest the biggest problem of it all. Because if you don't know who's in charge of running the subways, how do you change anything? True. And of course, there's Andy Byford, who did quit last month or two months ago. He never quit. He well, he's handed in a letter of resignation. But or did he? I, or did he? Or we, did he? We don't I, know. No, no one's seen it, and I would like to. I'd like to point out that this man is trying very hard to do right by New Yorkers but he keeps getting undermined every step of the way Correct. and that's a problem but what like we have done we have somebody here who's willing to put in the work and willing to talk for everybody and willing to do all this stuff but no one's listening to him or they keep throwing numbers at him it's like well this is expensive and this is expensive and this is expensive I, I have to say just so we don't go down the black hole of complete negativity uh, which is very easy to do in this scenario, believe me. But uh, what he has done, by saying the word accessibility, it has become part of the public discussion. True. And I don't give him credit for that. I, they're all, of, all of our activist allies have been saying the word over and over again, screaming the word, but finally it's being said in a place where it, is being, it can be heard and discussed in a different way. So it takes activism to get the, the discussion going among in the... In, in, in the in, in, the public, but then we have to get someone in a position of power who can actually do something about it. Is Andy Byford a figurehead? Who is? Other people in our in our the disability rights world have said, you know, that position people come and go. He's not, you know, and and what's what's going to happen next? You know, once once he gets so many no's from Cuomo that he can't see straight. Right. Um, but the reality is that the discussion has changed, and our phrase elevators are for everyone and some of the things that our activist allies have been saying are now part of the public conversation so you there is a feeling that there is a slight and you can agree or not with this Sasha but I think we're feeling that there is a a, 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 a shift in the public awareness about this issue and certainly it, and it's a horrible way to have this happen but Malaysia Goodson's death raised that up another notch because sure. it wasn't uh, about it, it was about parents, which is a whole huge class of people in New York City, um, and it and it and it made it not some sort of specialized uh, group of people, right. which isn't the right way to discuss it either. I mean, everyone deserves to Traverses. elevators are for everyone. Yeah, yeah. everyone yeah. has a right to mass transit in the city. Everyone has a right to traverse the city. Everyone has a right to live their life and to get where they're going. Yes, in a timely manner. Yes. I mean that's yeah. This is the big thing. It's a, having having accessible subways is is an economic imperative. You, if you, if people can get to their jobs, they can add to the economy. If people can get to school, they can get education and they get a job and then then and then help make the economy grow. Um, they can get to their doctor's appointments. They can stay healthy. They can pick up their kids from school. I mean, all of these things are about being a human being in a city. And if you exclude people from being able to be a human being in a city and get where you are going, you are doing great damage to the public. And humanity as a whole. Think about you know the emotional costs of not being able to get to your to your family or your friends, or just go out and see a show or in the movies, and you can't leave your neighborhood because you can't get on the train. That's terrible. That's just that's just awful. And 
now that the capital plan is out, there's lots of talk about new elevators being installed or at least being funded for the in the next five year of the capital plan. Now we all know that the capital plan is just good ideas, but they're not always they don't always come to fruition and it's not completely funded yet. Are you concerned given the history that the elevators that they are talking about might not be installed in this certain capital plan over the next five years? Is that a concern or are you hopelessly optimistic about it? <laughs> really? <laughs> I know. <laughs> After all this? I know. I, I know. I have the, to ask, right? Yeah. There's like no uh, mileage in it for me for being snide or snarky. I, you better believe I want those stations accessible. Right. But the history would indicate, no, it's there. If when there's not a legally binding commitment, which is what they've refused to sign in court, and let's just be clear that two and a half year old lawsuit and those fourteen hundred dollar an hour attorneys, that all goes away. If right. they simply commit to a timeline for installing the elevators, period. This is not a lawsuit seeking money. These are not ambulance chasers trying to line their own pockets or that of their clients. There is no money in it for us. The, how you settle this case is you agree to a timeline and you say, this is what we will do in this timeline. And then once that happens, then regardless of Byford being in charge, regardless of who comes after Cuomo, it doesn't matter regardless of what money does or does not materialize from congestion pricing, they're on the hook to do that first before they do all the other stuff. And once that's, once we get that, we like we people with wheelchairs, sure, but we as a city get that, we're on a totally different path because the MTA at that point, they'll have to start thinking about cost and efficiency. Whereas till now, I mean, even this capital plan, which I'm, was, it hurts so badly to say this because you want to say, yes, they, they got it. Yes, we got the other. No, I mean, I'm not sending those back, but it's being done in the same way that they've been building them all along, which is to say the slowest, most expensive way. Yeah. I mean, just all you have to do is divide one by the other, divide 5.5 billion by 70, you get 80 million per station for Wait, what? To yeah. put in a couple of elevators that maybe could actually be ramps, you get an $80 million and you, you start looking at it and you think, huh, I wonder who they asked what the like most uh, efficient way to do this was. Maybe it was the same contractors, this very, very short list of vetted approved contractors who are installing the elevators. And if you ask them, sure, they'll tell you this is the way we've been doing it and this is about what it costs. and and uh, you know it's really hard doing it in New York, and I don't doubt that it's hard. I'm a computer scientist. I'm not a elevator. I'm not a you know mechanical engineer. But when I've talked to elevator engineers, and I have actually gotten on the phone to elevator consultants and people who install elevators, and they say, "What? That is preposterous. That like that what? Yeah. There's there there are a whole other kind class of elevators that they should be using instead of these. They're using basically like you know, I mean, they're not literally gold-plated, but they're extremely heavy-duty, heavyweight machines that that's, they've sort of gotten it approved that that's the one that they have to be. They should be putting in LULAs, which are limited-use, limited 
application elevators, like the same one floor elevators they have at Motel 6 that okay. go from the ground. There they say they're like church elevators. They go from the ground floor to the second floor, ground second, that's it. And they're so much easier and so much lighter weight and way less expensive to put in, take way less space. But instead they're using They're probably these, easier to maintain too. They're, I'm sure, whether or not they are, they're a lot cheaper. Yeah. And I mean, stations need to have those that they can put in for, you know, pennies on the dollar and ramps. And then, I mean, because part of the reason that the current ones go out all the time is their load is astronomical because the only type of vertical access you get is in the elevator. And that means that every stroller, every heavy piece of luggage, every MTA construction piece of equipment, every garbage can that the MTA workers are taking out all go in that same elevator. So of course it's overburdened. So of course it goes out all the time. Whereas if there was a ramp and a Lula, you'd, you could do that for pennies on the dollar. But I mean, anyway, I'm get, I can get off track, but the point is, you know, f over 5 Actually, billion for 70 stations. Because it's about money <laughs> yeah, so and over time five. and effort. Yeah. And early. another great point that you've always made, Sasha, is that like, look around us. We're on the 14th floor of a building in New York City right now. And there are multiple elevators in this building that, that can get us here. Right. And look out the window. Every single one of these buildings we're looking at has an elevator, has multiple elevators, and they're not breaking down 80% of the time. Sure. They're they are running all day long, every day, 24 hours a day, and they're going up 18 stories, 36 stories, 120 stories. What is so hard about having an elevator that goes up one story and down one story? What What's the challenge there? And yet they seem to think that this is some technology that is beyond the MTA's uh, Budget can I, I? I mean, it really blows your mind when you look at the city and how they many talk elevators about elevators like they're flying cars or something. You know, they talk like this future technology that's hard to grasp. I'm like, it, elevators been around for like a hundred years. So and most you know. subway stations literally need one story. There are there are a couple that go yeah. that go down. I mean, there there are there are some that go down deeper. But we're talking at the most three stories. Yeah. And look at this city. We're made of elevators. Yeah. So their their logic uh, is is faulty at, yeah. to be very uh, generous. <laughs> That's true. Let's talk about accessoride. Accessoride, the current numbers that it costs six hundred and fourteen million dollars a year. It's a very flawed system. When I spoke to Aman Ramali, she was who was fighting for reform for Accessoride. We talked about everything from disrespectful drivers to sexual harassment on board. What has been your experience with Accessoride? So I've never actually taken Accessoride. Okay. And the reason is that. So I first thought, as I think I said, when I was in a chair, like. I never really knew anyone who took Accessoride. I just, that's, people in wheelchairs take the bus. Then I heard about it and I thought, this sounds, I should sign up for it. So I tried to sign up for it about, it's probably like five, six years ago now. And so I went online and oh, there wasn't like an online form. You, you have to call a number. So you call the number, they send you, they tell them who you are and so forth. They send you a, a letter, a paper letter in the mail. I believe there actually is an online form now, but anyway, so I filled out that paper letter, sent it back to them in the mail, then, or, or, I'm sorry, it was a paper application, but it wasn't like I just signed my name and the date, it was like a 10-page paper application where you had to have write in all this stuff like what, where you live, where you usually go, where, how many times a week, where are you, how far are you. Remember, this is to take transit, like right. no other person in the city has to say where they go. 
what you're writing for, what, you just take it. So, I mean, and um, on top of all that, your doctor has to sign it and certify you as having a disability. But I did all that and I sent it in. And then they send you back a paper letter in the mail saying, okay, you should show up at, and it was like in Coney Island or uh, on the, somewhere in, you know, far out in Brooklyn at like 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning at the, at the certification center. Yeah. There's only one, there's like one certification there, there one, and way out in Coney Island? And I didn't get that letter because I was out of town or something. By the time I got it, it the time had passed. And I was like, ah, I'm one of the lucky ones, to be frank. Like, I, the fact that I, I mostly, I'm mostly in Manhattan. I don't have to go between bros that often. So I could take, mostly get away with taking buses. But I'm a super lucky one in that I'm only paraplegic. So I have a manual chair that I can push myself. And it can be thrown in the trunk of a car. And I can transfer myself onto the backseat of a car a taxi and get them to act get the driver to throw it in the trunk or in the back but none of that matters because if you don't have a credit card and money to pay the cab driver which i do because I, I i like got that phd in computer science and got a good job before this happened to me so i'm in like a very fortunate position that i haven't had to rely on accessoride right but the fact that i mean and it also makes me have the you know confidence that when I take the subway when an elevator goes out and I get stuck on the platform which happens fairly frequently I can get carried up the stairs like a, like, like a couple of strong two or three strong people can right. carry me up the stairs and if you're in a motorized chair you're that's, SOL that, that's you know? all, yeah that's that's impossible so you're stuck. those chairs are really really heavy so I have a kind of different situation I mean a wheelchair is a wheelchair but not really so I haven't had to take accessoride have you had to be helped up the stairs? Oh yeah. How, how? I mean, I mean, I usually do ask this question. It's like if you get stuck at a station where there's no elevator, how do you get up the stairs? I mean, I spoke with Dustin, um, who said he sometimes calls the fire department and they come and get him. So calling the fire department is the official MTA answer, and I had done that a couple times. And if you have time to wait for them to show up, they will show up and they'll carry you up and they're professionals. And I vastly appreciate that. But if you got somewhere to be, right. you're thinking, okay, if I can get up these stairs somehow and I've gotten, I would say, uh, unfortunately kind of used to and skilled at sussing out who on the platform I can ask to carry me up the stairs. And people are kind. Yeah, they are. Remarkably kind. I've, I've actually had to help somebody when a train crapped out, it's like, I, could, I couldn't lift the chair, but, yep. you know, I kind of went around and was just like, we need to get this person up. Thank so, you, Sarah. Well, you know, we're all in those tin cans together, yeah. so, you know, and, you know, and then I realized something. It was like, okay, we're in this neighborhood now. What happens now? I mean, I could just walk to the next train station or walk over this way, and that's okay, but where's the next bus stop? How does this person get to where they're going? You know, it's like all these questions just started coming to me. I was just like, how do they get where they need to be? Because now they're out of wherever they're going. And now they're out of, like, their situation. Now they got to recalibrate. But how do you recalibrate when your choices are limited? And it's like, I didn't know what else to do. I was, like, I was just like, wow, okay. Well, this is the, I mean, the boondoggle of accessorite is that in theory, it is serving a vital, essential service. 
But they're terrible at it. Yeah, but it's, but they it's, are terrible at it. And, and it's and it's actually, I mean, boondoggle in various ways. But there's, from the numbers they were saying at the council meeting, there are 160,000 people right now that are qualified to be on it. If you look at the other number of, like, how many people with disabilities around the city, how many people who should be able to use it? It should be more like a million. Yeah. But it's so hard. The bar is really high, and they, they, they basically make it really hard to qualify. It's like a funnel that makes it. So just to get it is, is super hard. Like, it's some, like, you know, great benefit and a free trip to Disneyland. No, it's like qualifying to take the service that is not really so wonderful, but it's a lot better than nothing. So people, if you don't have another option, you take it. But it's, so e even when they make it really hard to qualify and the number of people who are subscribed and qualified is really low, they can't actually afford to run it. So that's, my belief is that that's why they make it so hard, because if all the people who should get it, like, I'll put it this way, if anyone was able to just call 1-800-ACCESS-RIDE and ask for a ride, their budget would explode tomorrow, because the system is so inaccessible. Yeah. So those things are, like, deeply intertwined, and they never talk about it, the fact that 20% of subway accessibility and huge accessoride budget, those go together. Yeah. And it's, those things, they have to improve in tandem. I mean, so if, the, so tomorrow the subways are 100% 100, 100 accessible, then they can run accessoride. It's a vital service. A lot of people can't take public transit, even if it is accessible. And then those people could actually get an accessoride because they could afford to run it like a real service. Then they could have 1-800-ACCESSORIDE be a thing you just call. Nobody takes it for fun. But if people take it because they, I mean, then, because right now, if someone breaks their leg, they're not on Accessoride. They're not, they can't go through that months-long approval process. If they're visiting from, you know, Berlin in a wheelchair, they're not on Accessoride. It's not an actually available public service. It's only available to this very, quote-unquote, lucky, I'm doing air quotes, lucky few who have qualified for it. And, and even at that level, the budget is, you know, north of half a billion dollars. So those things have to go together for either of them to actually work. And the, the other part of the insanity of the system is that if New Yorkers were told that they had to plan their trips 24 hours ahead of time, people would scream and yell and tell, well, they would do a lot of things. But no, no subway rider, if you told them you have to plan 24 hours ahead of time to take the subway, people would stop in their tracks. Accessoride expects you to book your trip a, a day ahead of time. You can't book it the day of, you can't book it an hour before. And yet they say this is the best option. Well, it, in some ways, it, 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 it's, it's it, better than nothing. It's, it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing, but it is insulting and ludicrous that the, 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 tra the transportation alternative for people with disabilities who cannot use the, the subway system it, well, uh, is, is, to, is, to, is to plan your trip ahead of time and have that be an acceptable form of public transportation. That, so, which, which is why this whole EL thing is such a. For people who don't know, uh, they did a they did a trial run of using all the technology that's out there through Uber, through Lyft, through all these other things that makes getting in a cab so easy for everyone. And they thought, what if we did this for Accessoride? And they set up the system, and of course, people responded like oh, you can't even great. imagine it because was it was easy. It was it was it was convenient of Dust, all things. Dustin Jones, who I spoke to, um, is that was in the pilot. Yes, and he was explaining yes. it to me, and it, it was just like, well, this is great. That that was in that was in the spring. Yeah, before they decided to do what they did the other day, and it was just like I was, I was like, it's almost like it's like it's the only thing they've ever done well for those of us who 
you know, need extra help. And they say it was too successful and therefore too expensive. But the way they're doing it is too unsuccessful and too expensive, both. I mean, it, it, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a ludicrous state of affairs that the system that they have set up doesn't actually serve the people. And someone, this is my, someone is making money off of Accessoride. And it's not the writers. It's not, it, someone is making money that is not going back into the system. But and they can't be, I mean, it can't be successful at the way, I mean, so, like Dustin, I mean, he is like the most fit guy you're going to see. I mean, he has, you know, arms the size of most people's legs. That, I've, I've arm wrestled the man, he is strong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> didn't grow, didn't last very long. And he's a very nice person. And he's very, he's very kind. <laughs> but, you know, so what I'm trying to say is, if the subway near his house is accessible, you better believe he would be on it. Yeah. But it's not. And that's why, that's why he needed to sign up. That's why the e-hail the e was such a boon for him. He's like, finally, I can get around just like everyone else. And that's why they immediately trimmed it right back because they realized like, oh, if we actually let people in wheelchairs get around just like anybody else, they're going to want to get around. And we can't have that because it's going to bust our budget because they're, or that's, that's, that's the claim. And so it's like when we were at that hearing, at the city council hearing, Kathleen Collins got up there and she's, a, she's an attorney who's in a wheelchair as well. And she was incensed and it was moving and it really brought tears to my eyes because she said, because earlier when they were talking about why is it so expensive and why are there so many rides? And one of the, one of the council members who meant no harm said, so what, like, do you know what kind of rides people are taking? And like, are these mostly rides like to work or are they mostly to the supermarket? Or, you know, what is it? Why, how come there's so many more rides? And she had, was clearly and very understandably incensed and said this you know, who else would you ask where do you wh wh what kind of rides you're taking you can't ask that you can't ask people where are you going it's public transit you don't ask people who are taking the subway when they buy when you buy a metro card they don't say oh, you can't buy a metro card if you're going to parties too much yeah no you just that's the whole point is it's your right to use transportation to get around the city where you want and that that we're a class of people that can be Dismissed. Uh, Dismissed. Yeah. Like, where are you going? Why are you going there? Well, and account for yourself. Yeah. When, when, when it's public transportation, that means it's public. And she's right. a professional. She's an attorney. She's a, she's a grown woman. And for her to have to put up with this is appalling. And they've capped it to 16 rides per month, which is ridiculous. Not even to ride and to work and back every day. No. Yeah. And now it's free, free, up until $15. And then after that, you have to pay the rest of the cost. No, they're making it absolutely prohibitive. I mean, that that'll get you three blocks in New York, and then what? And you're you're just you're essentially just paying for a cab ride. They did a trial run with an incredibly successful, accessible system, and now they're saying no, you can't have it. I mean, that's that's the heartbreak of this. They did something wonderful for the first time ever, and they're just taking it all away. But meanwhile, Access Ride still exists, and Access Ride, I forget what it is now, Sasha, it's, it's $72 per ride, or 76 or... It's 80. 80? Uh, 80 that the city pays, which is to say that we all pay, that riders and taxpayers pay. Yeah. The lucky uh, participants, they don't get it for free. They pay this, they pay 275 in cash. You can't even use a MetroCard. Can't use a MetroCard? No, they don't have that technology. So, and I don't mean to be glib, I mean... They don't, they, they've somehow, they've, they're not, so that, which, but, but like, I mean, it's inconvenient. They have to have the you exact have have change, exact, have I suppose so. But it also means they, you can't, if you're using it, you can't get the, you know, weekly discount or the, or the fair fares or all these 
you, you can't. So it's, it's just, just when you think you got to the bottom, it's... It's even worse. Uh, and that's why I... It's I'm, so I'm very disrespectful. Lucky. It's, yeah. It's shameful the way they're treated. Nearly one million New Yorkers and require. That's, and that's why when I got on the, when I got uh, Mayor de Blasio on the, on the phone on Brian Lehrer last week, I said, I tried to ask him respectfully as I could. I respect the man, but he has a golden opportunity. He can't, you know, as, as Jennifer was saying, the governor is in control ultimately at the end of the day, but he can change the conversation. He can get the voices of the room and somebody with Accessoride who takes Accessoride needs to actually be on that board. Like all three of us sitting here talking, none of us take Accessoride. We can talk about what's wrong with it, but we've never had to take it. And it's like, if there's somebody on that side of the room who actually took it, instead of only on the powerless side, the yelling and screaming, but ultimately not voting side, it's, it's not going to move the needle and it's not going to be top of mind. Well, Bill de Blasio, I feel, doesn't use his bully pulpit to fight for transit for everybody anyway. It just seems to be in the back somewhere, in the back of his mind. This is part of the pointing fingers of who's in charge. It's his relationship with Cuomo. It's yeah. his non-relationship with Cuomo. And they both say, so So what we're talking about actually is appointing people with disabilities to the MTA board. And we had this campaign last week where we tried to, all on Friday the 13th, we tried calling uh, Mayor de Blasio's uh, office, and you can't call de Blasio directly, isn't yeah. that interesting? So we went, well, let's see if we can get him on Brian Lair because it's Ask the Mayor every Friday morning at 10 on, on that show. So we thought, we'll try to get him there, but we'll also try 311, which is actually, we learned, the only way to try to contact the mayor. And uh, we uh, a whole bunch of us did this blitz of calls. Sasha got through uh, and, and got to address de Blasio. And, uh, and Brian Lair at the end of it said, you know, this is, thank you for this question. And... Uh, Chairman Pat Foy will be on the show next week, and we'll try to ask him whether we can get people with disabilities on the MTA board. In the meantime, I got a notice back from. So it's a when you when you write when you go to three there's a when you try to contact the mayor you get a, a contact page and you can send in an email. So I did that, and I got a letter back saying an email back saying uh, thank you for your concern. This actually doesn't. Uh, uh, this is not the business of the mayor. You, this is you need to address this to the MTA. Here is the MTA's address, and I thought, well, that is ludicrous. And then, cut to the next morning, I get two letters, two emails from uh, uh, Mayor De Blasio's office, someone else in his office, that said, um, actually, a caller called into Brian Lair and and Bill De Blasio and Mayor De Blasio answered this question uh, last week, and they emailed me a transcript of Sasha's conversation on Brian Lair. And I thought, okay, on the one hand, this is so Meta. out there as to not be believed. Because literally in a day, I get, we can't, that's not our problem. Call, call you know, go, go, go to the MTA. And then, oh no, we're dealing with it. We're dealing with it. Look, here's this phone call. Um, and at, bottom line is, he, he still, he said that he was concerned about this. But in the end, it, it is, it has to get approved by Cuomo. This is the whole dilemma. De Blasio can make a nomination, but it has to be confirmed by Cuomo. Mm -hmm. So again, we come back to who's in charge. And when we have a transportation, transportation system that is run by a city and a state government, and they both are saying it's the other one's responsibility to pay for it, where does that leave the ridership? With no elevator, with not enough elevators, and a completely faulty paratransit system. That's where it leaves us. That's true. That is true. Let's talk about buses. While buses are 100% accessible due to the ramps that are on them, 
However, the bus lanes are clogged with other vehicles that are buses. So how difficult is it to ride the bus when it can't get to the curb? And how, how hard is it to just traverse the city on a bus? And the difficulties that go along with that? So, uh, all of those things. Yeah. Uh, so, talk, so yeah. So I mean, it's not a bus city. I mean, what's like the so you know what's the signature New York transit? Is the subway? Right. That's how you get around, and there's a reason for that. This is not a surface transit city. There's no traffic uh, underground, and certainly if you're going to another borough, you're not taking the bus. But even if it is, let's say it's a local trip like in Manhattan, where I have to go across town a fair bit. Buses are pretty good. It's the only way to do it. And so in those, so apart from all the things you can't do on buses, buses you can do some things. So like a crosstown bus, that's where you get into cars being parked near the curb and then the bus can't get close to the curb to put down the ramp. And this happened you know, more times than I can count where the bus driver will sort of look at you and shrug his shoulders and he'll sort of point hopefully to the next stop or maybe he'll kind of pull out there and and fold down the ramp at like a really steep angle and then have to get out of the bus and push you up the ramp. Um, but bus, I mean, the operators themselves, they're wonderful. Like they're, they, they'll, they'll, they find a way to get you on. They try their best to help you out, but their job is made a lot harder by, uh, by drivers who don't, you know, I mean that the bus, the bus stops are basically are seem to be effectively, you know, optional parking spots for UPS drivers, sometimes for police cars taxis and it's just i and again like i don't think like a lot of these things it's not that people are trying to screw over people with disabilities it's just not thought of and right. it's just like the standard is not there that that's not something you can do and you know where does it start if this is it enforcement awareness all around well bill de blasio again talked a lot earlier this year about policing the bus lanes and getting people out of the bus lanes that don't belong there but that's not happening. You know, you see police cars, you see UPS, you see all of them in there, and it's just like, you gotta get out. But no one's policing that, literally, the police are there, just sitting there. So I don't take the bus, but I, someone recently just said to me the 14th Street bus is, is completely changed. Yeah. That is that wonderful. Is, that is amazing, it's amazing. So, it, yeah. it, it can work, it get, can the, get the cars out of the way. Yeah. I mean, get the cars out of New York, is my feeling. Yeah, but, um, yeah. That, that, yeah. Definitely. So, for our visually impaired citizens, they offer braille on MetroCard kiosks and on the platforms on like where, the, where it says where it is, mm -hmm. but I don't really see any other instances of braille to help them. Are there any other instances of braille for them other than the, you know, the kiosks on the, for the MetroCards? What about announcements? Announcements are awful. <laughs> I mean, you can't, even if, this also goes, it's just like, for those of us who can hear well, I mean, you don't understand what's happening, even if they choose to announce what's happening. And they're not required to actually announce anything. Well, they, if you, if you go to the MTA website, they will tell you that they are in the middle of a uh, accessibility, uh, they, have a, they have a lab at J Street Metrotech that they are uh, filling that station with all kinds of uh, visual impairment aids. Mm -hmm. The problem is, from uh, one of our colleagues who uh, went to see what it was all about, they have not let anyone know that this is going on. And so th th she met a, a blind person with a, a cane 
who had come into the station and had no idea that there was this whole lab set up for him to, there were, there were uh, strips on the ground to help guide the way, but they, they didn't get any information out to people about what this lab was doing. So you just think there's something really A for effort, but B for execution. Like, right. great that you're trying out ways of reaching different groups of people, but if you don't let those people know that it's happening, what good are you doing? And the other thing that we're afraid that they're going to say at the end was like, well, we tried it, and it didn't work. No one, no one responded. You know, whereas that should be in every single station. Yeah. Every station should be available to people with visual impairments and hearing impairments. And, you know, it, the list goes on. Well, for our hearing impaired, I mean, they do offer TTY over the phone. And there is sound on the MetroCard kiosks. But we can't even understand announcements. When, you're, when you have all your hearing together, you can't understand what they're saying either. And all the little... Um, fancy screens that they have now have conflicting information on them. So you're reading one screen that says one thing, you're reading another and it says another thing. So it's just like, how does, how do they get along at all? I mean, I, I appreciate everybody who has a disability that manages to get through the system in one piece, <laughs> you know? It's so hard and it's so unnecessarily hard. It's not hard to do all these things, just create Little things that make a big difference, well, but, or, or but it's not even in their purview at all. It's money. They, they, it's money. And, and frankly, maybe, maybe it is hard, but there's no way to know until you ask. Yeah. And you know, one of the, I think that one of the best models of the independent living movement is nothing about us without us. And until those people are on the board, are in the room, I mean, none of the three of us happens to be blind or be hard of hearing or deaf. So we can speculate about what those people might need. Get them in the room. Yeah. Get them in the room. There, I mean, there's plenty out there. And if the board, if they were on the board, they don't have, even if de Blasio put them on the board, they won't have the votes to pass things. But you better believe they're going to tell people, no, don't do this, or do this, or this would work, or that would work. They'll, you know, let us speak for ourselves instead of having able-bodied people guess about what those people might need or, or should need or might want or could be good for them. Uh, get people who actually need it. That's yeah. fundamentally, I mean, it's frustrating. And I mean, but de Blasio at this instant that we're talking, he has those two vacant seats and we are going to let him hear it if he does not appoint some diverse people with disabilities. Well, this leads into my next question. If you could have Governor Cuomo, Bill de Blasio, Pat Foy, and Andy Byford in a room, what would you tell them? Talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> talk to each other. It's, that, it's, it's not that simple, but talk to each other. They are all talking at, around, above, below. Talk to each other. And, and then invite into that room the people that you're trying to serve, which are the riders. You, ha you have to, and, and people with disabilities who are riders. Yes. <laughs> yes, and... I mean, and talk to people who actually, not just people with disabilities, but people who ride public transit every day. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, it's not just people with disabilities don't have to run it, but it has to be a representative group and get people of color, get women. Those are both in very short supply on the current MTA board. It's kind of like taxation without representation, isn't it? It is, in fact, taxation without Didn't representation. Didn't we fight a revolutionary war over that? Many years ago? I think there's a song about it. <laughs> my, my. 
In our remaining time, is there anything you'd like to say about the state of accessibility in New York City and the transit system? There are so many things to be said. <laughs> Speak your mind. Say what you got. Well, we, we, have to, we have to have this discussion that activists are having, and it has to reach the broader public. Because as soon as anyone, this is my personal experience, never having looked for an elevator, never having pushed someone in a wheelchair anywhere in the world until my father got sick, when, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And so this is my theme song. Make everyone see it. Help people to see what they have not seen. And I, it's not out of ignorance and it's not out of um, uh, a, a disregard for other human beings. It's, it's people haven't had that experience, so they don't know what, they're, what they don't know. So our job as activists is, is to help people see, and then once people know what the situation is, even if they don't personally need an elevator in a subway station, they are outraged. I mean, to a person, when I bring this up, they are outraged at when they discover what it is that so many New Yorkers deal with on an everyday basis. So I need, I, I, my, my goal is to get the message out there and to help people see, and again, in the, in the disability world, this, seeing it, that that's probably an unhel unhelpful metaphor, but help people know what they don't know. Right. And that's how we can make change. That's true. I agree. I think you don't know till you know. And, uh, and I always, like, I just want to be, call myself out first on that, that I wasn't, like, against people in wheelchairs before this happened to me, but I had no idea. And then it was a major wake-up call, like, oh, whoa. I lived in the city my whole life, and I just thought, oh, people in wheelchairs, they don't, I guess they, I just didn't think about it. They're, I don't see them on the subway, and and then it's what, um, it's what Sid Walensky, one of the, it's kind of like one of my mentors in this, who said, Sasha, if you go to a city and you don't see people in wheelchairs, it doesn't mean they're not there. It means the city hasn't been built in such a way that it's accessible to them. So they're stuck at home, they're in the hospital, they, they can't get outside and be part of anything. Mm -hmm. And that's shameful, and it's a loss for them, for us, but it's a loss for our families, for our friends, and for society as a whole. Like, in New York, and I'm so, I mean, my mom says, you're the luckiest unlucky guy. And I think that's about it because all these wonderful people like Gene Ryan that we work with were at this for a long time before me, the people who passed ADA and forced this lawsuit, this imperfect, to put it nicely settlement, but at least they had to do those hundred key stations. So I can kind of take the subway to work on a good day and I'm hard headed enough, but lucky enough that I can I have a good job that I can be an hour late for and I won't get fired. So it, it gets me out there to do it. And so it's kind of like a, you know, a, I guess like a, 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 we're on the shoulders of, of giants there and we got to keep pushing it so that, you know, like Jean Ryan says a lot, she says, I'm, I'm old. I'm not going to be around here to see a lot of this, but we're doing it for the, the ones who come next. Wow. That's profound. And it's important. And I thank you both for talking to me today. And I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. So what did we learn today from Jennifer and Sasha? 
We learned that the current state of the MTA in terms of accessibility is abysmal. The elevators are not only frequently broken, but they're in shocking condition in terms of cleanliness. Accessoride is not the most efficient, easy to qualify for, or user-friendly. Ramps on buses, while appreciated, sometimes are completely functional. And those buses need to be able to get to customers. Unfortunately, the bus lanes aren't properly policed. And everybody and their mother is in the bus lane. So those buses need to be able to get to the passengers. So they need those issues need to be addressed by the mayor. More needs to be done to make the transit accessible and convenient for all of us. New York City falls behind every major city in America when it comes to accessible public transit. Chicago has 100% accessible features on all lines of transportation. Chicago has 146 stations and 100 of them have elevators or ramps, which is 70%. They intend to have all stations accessible in 20 years. Boston stations are 90% accessible. I'd also like to point out that Boston predates us by about seven years. So I don't want to hear that we can't build elevators in our old train stations because Boston has managed to do it. BART in the Bay Area, MARTA in Atlanta, LA Metro, and Washington DC are all 100% accessible. All of these cities can do this. Why can't we? Not only does a lack of accessibility take a physical toll on those simply trying to get from point A to B. It takes an emotional toll. The stress of not knowing if the elevators are working properly at the start of your journey and at your destination, and then having to possibly double back. Not being able to enjoy all the wonderful things this city has to offer because you can't get out of your own neighborhood. The unnecessary stress of being late to appointments or a job interview. Or simply not being able to spend time with friends and family. Per the ADA Act, which was first drafted in 1986 and finally passed into law in 1990, if a station is significantly modified, at least 20% of the renovation costs must be spent on ADA improvements. However, this does not seem to be the case here in New York City. Smith and 9th Street in Brooklyn was closed for two years for renovation and no ele elevator. Smith and 9th Street is also the tallest station in all of the boroughs. Bay Ridge Ave, Prospect Ave, and 53rd Street here in Brooklyn on the R-Line were all closed at the same time for renovations and nary an elevator in sight. What we do have is art to look at, fancy glasswork, and lots of informational screens with conflicting information on them. In my research, the only way the MTA ever agrees to put in an elevator is when they have been sued and forced to. You would think that if the system is accessible to everyone, that means everyone wins. You would think in a civil society, everyone winning would be a plus. Hopefully, 
going forward, elevators and ramps will just be part of the plan when renovating or building new stations. I would like to point out that elevators are for everyone. Our disabled citizens, the elderly, heavily pregnant ladies, those with strollers, and those who may be temporarily injured. However, it's not enough that you have the elevators. You have to maintain them and keep them clean. How hard is it for someone to go in once a day and sanitize an elevator? Considering that there's only 118 of them, it shouldn't take too long. But then again, the MTA cleans the interiors of the subway cars every 8 to 10 weeks, which is also unacceptable. Because it's important that we are heard, if you are on social media, here are some people you can reach out to. Sarah Meyer is the Chief Customer Service Officer for New York City Transit. She can be reached on Twitter at Sarah Meyer NYC. That's S-A-R-A-H-M-E-Y-E-R-N-Y-C. She is always asking for suggestions to improve the system, so give her some. Let her know that you would like to see the overall system improve for everyone. Governor Cuomo's office can be reached on Twitter at NYGovCuomo. Also, his office phone number is 518-474-8390. Let him know that the overall system needs to be accessible for everyone. Mayor Bill de Blasio can be found at, on Twitter at Bill de Blasio. You can call 311 or also on Twitter at NYC Mayor's Office. Also, reach out to your elected, your council member, your borough president, president, your assembly person, your congressperson, your senator. Tell them that the current state of accessibility is shameful and demand that they push for 100% accessible features across all lines of transportation. We cannot be considered the greatest city in the world until we accommodate everyone. So everyone can enjoy what this city has to offer because everyone matters. That's it, everyone. Thank you for listening. And I hope that Jennifer Van Dyke and Sasha Blair Goldenson has given you something to think about and chew on. Remember, we're all in these tin cans together. And in order for this to work, we all have to participate or just be supportive and be in my amen corner. Here are some spots where you can reach out to Rise and Resist, Sasha Blair Goldenson, and myself. And as the four tops once said, reach out and I'll be there. Thank you to Jennifer Van Dyke and Sasha Blair Goldenson for meeting with me. To find out more information about Rise and Resist, go to their website, riseandresist.org slash elevator dash action dash group. Email them, info at riseandresist.org, Twitter at Rise and Resist, Facebook, Rise and Resist NYC, Instagram, Rise and Resist, which is R-I-S-E-N-R-E-S-I-S-T-N-Y-C. To find Sasha, he is on Twitter at sbgoldenson, which is G-S-B-G-O-L-D-E-N-S-O-H-N. Find me 
Email podcastsarah at gmail.com. And Sarah is with an H. This podcast is hosted on anchor.com. Find me on Twitter at Zoom. That's E-X-E-N-E-Z-O-O-M. Where I employ the hashtag, How's Andy's Commute? Whenever I complain to the MTA about my commute or your miserable commute. Also, hashtag service evasion, hashtag build the buses slow. Instagram, lights at the end of the tunnel, one big word. Facebook, lights at the end of the tunnel. SoundCloud, lights at the end of the tunnel. Spotify, lights at the end of the tunnel. Stitcher, lights at the end of the tunnel. Google Podcasts, lights at the end of the tunnel. Although this app is only available for Android users. Breaker Social Podcasts, lights at the end of the tunnel. Radiopublic.com, lights at the end of the tunnel. Pocketcast, lights at the end of the tunnel. Overcast, lights at the end of the tunnel. Castbox, lights at the end of the tunnel. Thanks to Ox on the Roof for the intro music. Follow them on Twitter at Ox Roof Music. Also SoundCloud, Ox on the Roof, and Instagram, Ox on the Roof. So reach out and share. The only way for this to be successful is to work together. We need to shine a light so bright they can't ignore us. Shine brightly, everybody.